Welcome back this evening. We're glad to have you and appreciate your attendance and uh, hope that uh, today has been a blessing to you. Uh, This morning, you may have heard as I was called out for failing to enjoy a meal or two. And uh, I thought it was clear that, and most of you understand, that, that, that I observe every Sunday a fast um, because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. So, obviously, it's the day of fasting. Well, you guys really had, I really had you going. Huh? You're looking pretty serious. They're like, who's he calling out? Uh, no, we just have a little fun and uh, appreciate Ted very much. Uh, someone did send me this email today. I thought I would share it. A story from USA Today about uh, the company which I love. Uh, in the middle of the story was this quote. At the lead of the company's statement of who we are, their management says, it's not about being closed on Sunday. It's about how we use that time. And I thought that was uh, especially appropriate, thinking about the blessing of time and how God's blessed us and um, all of that. So uh, all of that basically was to say, uh, you know, today they're closed. But tomorrow, make sure you're there, okay? And uh, enjoy the blessings. One other word about the backpack blessings before we jump into the lesson tonight. Did notice as I came in, there are two teacher supply crates that have not been claimed. And it would be wonderful if a good-hearted soul would be willing to claim those. They have, of course, the list in there of the supplies you need um, and to bring those back. I I wouldn't want to short any teacher, um, and I'm sure everybody sort of assumes somebody will get those, but they're at the south entrance, so if you'll make it a point to uh, do that, and, and maybe you're, you, you're like, I'd love to, but I'm really not in a position to go shopping, but I'd like to donate toward that or something. Uh, and may, maybe you're in a position to shop, and, but you just don't have the extra funds to do that. I, th- I think this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. So if you'd like to be involved with one of those two crates, let me know. If you can't just take the crate yourself and do it, uh, let me know if you'd like to donate or, or you say, hey, I'd be willing to go and shop if you can find a gift card or something. Um, we'll, we'll figure it out, okay? But let's not let tonight end and without both of those being claimed. On Sunday nights, we are studying, as you know, if you've been here any length of time, the life uh, with Luke, uh, Luke's account, uh, as he writes it to Theophilus, of the orderly uh, organization of Jesus' life. He does this with a great deal of methodology and purpose, and uh, tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. Before we begin, I want to ask you a a question to just chew on for a second. What is the most expensive thing that you have ever purchased? Um, Perhaps it's uh, a car, perhaps it's your home, um, maybe college education for your kids, Uh, maybe you're a collector of something and there's a a big ticket item that you uh, really value. I went went and um, found some very expensive things, and uh, their price tag. I read a story that, of course, Manhattan real estate, they're very expensive. But one of the most expensive pieces of real estate, believe it or not, 
are parking spots. And recently one went, just now we're talking about just a parking spot for a million dollars. Of course, obviously high uh, traffic location, good, good positioning and all of that, but, but it was one million dollars that someone was willing to pay for a parking spot. Uh, if you're, if you're a, an iPhone fan, um, the, uh, there's an iPhone Diamond Rose Edition by Stuart Hughes. And this thing was like all decked out in gold and, and diamonds on it. And, and it was just like a sparkly phone. I would, if you drop it, you know, the phone itself was $8 million. $8 million uh, for an iPhone. I, yeah, if you drop it, there goes, you know, 80 grand right there. Um, uh, some of you are musicians. You're probably familiar with the Stradivarius violin, pretty well known for being a high, super high-end violin. One of those recently went in auction for $16 million. Uh, maybe you're a car guy, a gearhead, and um, you enjoy classic cars especially. I saw that a 1963 Ferrari 250 GTO for just a, just a tiny little $70 million. Now, for most of those things, those are extreme examples, obviously, but, but the question is, sort of naturally, why would someone pay that price for those items? And the answer in each and every situation is that the cost to, to the buyer, the value of the item exceeded the cost. The value of the item to that buyer exceeded the cost. Ignoring uh, extreme high-end examples, maybe you've seen this if you've gone to an auction. I went to an auction one time. Actually, it was for Wichita Work Camp. It was a hardware store that was being uh, liquidated, and the auctioneer was going through, and they had different you know, tools and stuff. And so I found some things I thought Work Camp could probably use. Maybe we'll get a deal on them. And uh, it was a crowded auction, lots of people there. This auctioneer ran a tight ship, and um, I'll not forget... I believe it was a case of uh, this expanding foam, right? And, and I can't remember the exact price that the retail price was on, but it was like, let's say $5 a can. Some, some, I mean, the price tag, the retail price tag on these things. And the auction got to go in, and there was two buyers that just really were into expanding foam, you know? I got out about like $3 because I didn't there. Okay, that's not it. And these guys went until it was like... $8, $7-$8 a can. So they were paying more at auction than they could do. They could just gone to the hardware store and buy it or, or, or gone to another store and bought it retail for much cheaper. And I, I thought, why in the world? Well, they call that auction fever, right? I just got I get locked into that item and I want it. And the value of it is greater than actually the, the cost of it. Well, tonight we're not going to talk about a costly thing or a costly item. We're going to talk about a costly Decision. In fact, my, in my estimation, the costliest decision a person can make here on planet Earth. And we're going to talk about that. It's in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 uh, through verse 62. And I hope you'll follow along. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, to another, he said, uh, 
I'm sorry, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What we're talking about tonight is the costly decision following Jesus. And, and I think it's very important that anyone who's seeking to follow Jesus understand the cost of it. Um, I worked with teenagers for almost two decades in youth ministry. Lots of teenagers wanted to make the decision to follow Jesus. And some people in, in, the, in, in the church world get, get a little up all excited about the age of a person. I don't think the age is as important as the maturity of a person. Uh, that is, there were some 12, 13-year-old girls that had tremendous spiritual maturity and understood Luke 9, 57 through 62. This was a costly decision they were making. I baptized adults that I'm not sure they fully understood this cost that Jesus was asking them to pay. It's a costly decision, and I think it, the reason the Bible doesn't give an age of, you know, when a person, you know, just draw the line and, and say you, when you can or can't is because people reach that understanding at different levels. But when a person understands that following Jesus is the most costly decision in the world, and, and they truly acknowledge and are able to do so, then I think they're ready to follow. It's no small decision. It's, it's not something that should be done lightly or without a great deal of thought. Because if you follow Jesus, if you go with him, with him, all the way, it will cost you a great deal. In, in, in the Western world, we, we don't like to talk about that as much. In, in fact, in churches, we really like to keep the cost pretty low, the, the barrier to entry pretty low. And I don't mean to overcomplicate the gospel, but it's a little bit of a bait and switch to just rush people into following Jesus without fully helping them to understand the cost of that decision. As we look at this cost and how it will cost us, let's think about three specific ways that Jesus points out. The, the, the first thing it will cost us is your home. Now, when I say your home, I mean a sense of security and belonging to a place, not a structure. Understand, I'm not talking about the physical address and the structure in which you live. I'm talking about a sense of belonging. The first follower to Jesus, he wanted to follow Jesus to his destination. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus wanted him to know that he didn't have a destination in this world. And his destination, if you will, was to sacrifice himself and leave this world. The birds fry, fly freely. Foxes roam as they please, but even they 
return home. The birds return to their nest. The foxes return to their holes and their home. A, a home for, for you and I, a place of rest, a place where you are yourself, a place of belonging, a place of relative security, a place of safety. Not so for the Christ follower. He says, if you follow me, you lose that. You lose the sense of safety, security. You lose a sense of permanence, and certainly a sense of permanence in this world. Think about it. Jesus wasn't at home, even in his own hometown. Luke tells us this in Luke chapter 4. We, we already read it, and I have no doubt that you memorized the sermon on it. But just humor me and go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 24. He said, speaking of Nazareth, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What do you mean by that? Did, did not the, Nazar, the, the Nazarene people, I mean, surely as Jesus' star began to rise, don't you know they said, oh, yes, he's from my town. I mean, Nazareth is a small, fairly insignificant town. But Jesus didn't identify. He didn't see Nazareth as a place of permanence. He understood it was just a place for which he was in a time. And, of course, the, the, the deeper lesson that they rejected him even there should tell us something. should tell us something that uh, when you decide to follow Christ, sometimes those you know the best, sometimes those you think are the closest to you, uh, will be the ones farthest away. Christ was... In this world for 33 years, but not for a single solitary moment, was this world in him. He said in other gospel accounts, John 6, 38, uh, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He understood not just where he was from, but who sent him. And that's important to understand as we follow Jesus as well. First John chapter five, uh, 3, verse 13, Jesus said, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We're, we're experiencing that transition in our time and in our country right now. If you have not been paying attention to the news, uh, you have not been paying attention to the radical transformation in our Culture. We have gone now from a, and, and I don't call the United States a Christian nation, but we certainly have roots and heritage in Christendom. You study the founding fathers and you study what they believe, the majority of them, oh my, it's overwhelming that they were believers and followers and knew God had a part in the plan. And for many, for much of the time, the, the, the Constitution and the, the our civil liberties and, and the, the Bill of Rights, all of that based so much in here. Um, been refamiliarizing myself with a group called Wall Builders, and this guy just is an amazing phenomenon of history, and looking at all the original documents and studying the, the, the founders and, and where they got their ideas and where those things came from. And... So 
we had that in the beginning and for much of our history that that which they designed for a moral and religious people uh, kind of stayed along pretty good and and somewhere in the vicinity of of fifty to sixty years ago uh, there was a began a radical shift now Christians peaceable most of us are believed foolishly that we could coexist um, that that evil and good could coexist that light and darkness could commingle uh, we're finding out now that is not the case uh, I, I do genuinely fear for the world that my children and their children that I do not know will grow up into. The church will be a very different place. And it is no longer that the the culture will tolerate Christianity. Uh, There's coming a time, and quickly, uh, when we will see what Jesus meant when he said, when the world hates you, keep in mind. Jesus understood that. Um, We've lived pretty comfortably, and so we haven't had to experience that to the degree that Christians all around the world have. Very soon we will know that, and church, church will be a costly decision that you'll make. C.S. Lewis put it well, speaking of these things. He said, if I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We sing the song, this world is not my home. And, and that's a good song to sing and a good song to take to heart, to remember that we are not citizens of this world. Though I presume all of us here are citizens of this country, that our allegiance is to a higher kingdom, that our citizenship, as the Apostle Paul wrote, is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior. Um, in this position of having dual citizenship, we're, there's coming a time when, when, when you're going to have to make a decision of which holds more value. And, and we just need to realize that, that, that that's coming, that, that our citizenship, that our home is not here. To follow Jesus means that we really never are at home here. Whether we live in this country or not, we do not belong to the world. We live in the world, but we're not talking about the physical world. We're talking about the system of the world and how it works. Um, the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 13, verse 14, wrote, we, ha- we here have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I love that. Second Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, he's speaking of the body, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now, I, I am sad for the things I see uh, at the sense of loss in the direction we're moving. I'm not surprised by it. But uh, nor am I discouraged by it. Because my home, my citizenship, my true and lasting citizenship is not here. It never has been. From the moment I stepped into the water, from the moment you did, 
We pledged ourselves to a higher citizenship than here. And, and we have to hold tightly for that, to that. We have to live as exiles. We do not belong here. So don't get too comfortable while you're here. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he writes almost exactly this sentiment. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Following Jesus will cost you your home, not in the sense of you're going to sell your house. Some might, but, but this is something deeper than the structure, you understand? It's a sense of security and belonging. You lose that. It, it's not going to be found anywhere in this world. It is in the greater world which is to come. Secondly, following Jesus will violently wreck your priorities. The second follower in Luke chapter 9, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The second follower wanted to wait for the security of the wealth from an earthly inheritance. When his father died, and burying his father, I think most of you Sunday night crowd have probably heard this, but just so you understand, it was not that they were going to the funeral. This is, my father's coming to the end of his life. I need to go take care of him. I need to, need to tend the family affairs. If he was the eldest, he probably would have been what we would consider the executor of the estate. Let me close out all of that, get all the checks written, get the, my share of the inheritance, and then I'll come and follow you. So Jesus is not being terribly harsh here. The man's father just died, and, 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 and we're interrupting the, the funeral. We, we misunderstand the culture if we think that. This was an act of putting the cart before the horse. He wanted to get everything in his life in order and, and make sure he was absolutely set, and then... Follow Jesus. And Jesus said, nah, that's not how it works. To put it another way, anytime you would say or hear someone else say the following phrase, first, let me and fill in the blank, and then I'm going to really get serious about Jesus, has, has absolutely misunderstood discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. And, by the way, it tells us a great deal of your priorities. Remember this morning, Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, we can pick on this guy for, you know, wanting to settle the affairs of the house. But, but I've heard lots of people over the years say things like, well, you know, first uh, we, I need to get married and settle down and, and then I'll follow Jesus. Or, you know, I need to get my kids raised and then I'll follow Jesus. You know, I, I need to kind of get... Just people waiting and waiting and waiting, trying to get everything else in line before they follow Jesus. And, and that misunderstands what fellowship is all about. First John chapter 2, verse 17, the apostle of love writes this, The world, and it's, along with its desires, is passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. To use a, a metaphor, the world is the Titanic. And it's sinking 
And it's unwise to worry about where the deck chairs are. This thing's going down. You better get off. In that moment, the priority becomes seeking the lifeboat. Earlier this year, some of you know, Christy and I went on our 20th anniversary and we took a cruise to celebrate. I made the mistake of looking up what a cruise experience is like on YouTube. YouTube is a dangerous place. It's kind of like going to WebMD when you're sick. (laughs) Type in a few symptoms. Oh, I'm not going to make it. That's kind of like YouTube when you type in what's a cruise experience like because instantly YouTube thinks you want to know about all of the famous giant ocean vessels which are now at the bottom of the sea or famous catastrophes of storms in the ocean. And I don't really want to see that YouTube, but I saw a few of them. And it struck me in that moment how, as the camera's filming this boat rocking back and forth and the wind and the waves crashing, how, how, how so full of fear people were that they didn't, Remember that the lifeboats were there for a reason. We probably do the same thing flying. God forbid that you're in the air at 30,000 feet when something terrible happens. But I guarantee you, if that ever happens to you or I, that the experience in the moment when the cabin depressurizes and all the masks drop, there will be chaos. We've all sat there, and we'll have sat there as the flight attendants explain where the exits are and what to do and what order to put the masks on. But is anyone now paying attention? No. No, that, that, that won't be necessary, you see, until it is necessary. And, and then things get chaotic. As human beings, we do that. We, we forget to put first things first. And when following Jesus, you've got to put first things first. Things of this world, matters of the family, uh, matters of, of business and, and success and, and, and getting, you know, how the world might define success by any means, Jesus is going to wreck that. He's going to violate, he's going to turn over all the tables of your heart violently if you want to follow him. And finally, may we understand that following Jesus will cost us. It means no turning back. That's, that's the heart of it. No, no turning back, going with him all the way. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, uh, let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, again, this doesn't sound like an unreasonable request but perhaps the follower saying, I think I, I'm interested in this decision, but I need to talk it over. Maybe giving himself the opportunity to be talked out of it. You read the commentaries and they say, well, perhaps this man had a, a business, wanted to make sure it would be okay to leave the family business. Uh, we, we really don't know. But, but, but he seems to be wanting to give himself an opportunity of an escape. A, a second, maybe a plan B the opportunity to backtrack, to return the way that they came. God has always desired his people to be all in. 
It's not just a theme for 2019. That's, that's how God desires us to be. If you're still following along, Psalm chapter 37 would be a, a good place to go. Psalm 37, the psalmist writes in verse 5, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. And I've heard that scripture before, but you see, every element of trusting in the Lord is not just a mental decision. It's a mental decision that causes you to act in such a way as that there is no going back. Noah was committed to the Lord, and he trusted him enough to begin building an ark that he didn't know how it was going to work or uh, how it w- would be used uh, or who, how all the animals would get there. He just trusted him in him and committed himself to acting. Abraham committed himself to the Lord, and even when that meant taking his only son up a mountain, as his son asked the father, where is the sacrifice, Abraham said, The Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. He was was trusting in the Lord, and he was committed all the way. God calls us to be that way, and certainly his son Jesus calls the same. That, That as we follow, there is no turning back, no hedging of the bets, no no. No plan B. Luke chapter 17. Uh, obviously, we're not there yet as in our study, but uh, think about this along the idea of commitment. Jesus said in chapter 17, verse 32 and following, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife is infamously known for turning back. Not in a way just to see what's going on, but turning back in the sense of, I'm really not sure I want to leave. And she suffered for it. She became fairly salty after that. Dad joke for those of you dads out there. You're welcome. Jesus really is an either-or proposition. And when you come right down to it, there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room with Jesus. He calls us to put our hand to the plow and go forward. And that doesn't mean when you follow Jesus, you won't stumble. That doesn't mean when you follow Jesus, there won't be hard times. Of course, there will. But you press forward. You commit your way to the Lord. You trust in Him. And you keep plowing. And sometimes that's hard. It's certainly hard when you're going through it, when you're questioning whether you made the right decision. You have. Just keep going. And I think about it this way. I say Jesus is an either-or proposition now, right? Jesus is... <laughs> the moment you die, all truth will be revealed. You're going to know if Jesus was one of two things. Either he was a liar or he is Lord. It's an either-or, black and white. I'm a pretty binary person, and this really appeals to me. Because I don't want to... I mean, I hear people sometimes say, well, you know, if you live your whole life as a Christian, and you die, and you turn out that it was all 
just some crazy story and we were all fooled. So you've still lived a pretty good life. What's wrong with that? And I say, it was a lie. I don't want to live my life based on a lie. But oh, if it's true. It's truer than anything we've ever known. And we must fully commit ourselves to it. No turning back. The Apostle Paul is writing about the, the, the reality, but also the need for the resurrection. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, you know about the resurrection part, but, but look at verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, and 20. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if in, Christ, in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have been fallen, who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. Paul says not only is Jesus black or white, binary, true or false, liar or Lord, he says the resurrection is that way. If the resurrection's not true, then you've wasted your life horribly. But if it is true, you can't even begin to imagine what God has in store for you. May we not hedge our bets and say, well, I just live live a good life. No, you, you haven't lived a good life. It was all based on a lie. It better for sure be true. Of course, I think a Sunday night crowd knows and believes that, but... May we take this lesson to heart then. This is our sort of our takeaway for the evening. May we consider carefully the cost. Jesus, Jesus was not into bait and switch. He did not, some people in sales will tell you, you know, the trick to sales is if you've got a product or a service and you, you, you want to highlight all of the good parts and someone will wisely ask, well, what if, what if, what if the product has faulty parts or bad parts or, or things that the customer wouldn't like? And the charlatan salesman says, you don't talk about those parts. Jesus wasn't that way. He didn't come to mislead. He was quite upfront about the cost. With them and with us. It is the costliest decision that you and I will ever make. In fact, let's just turn to Luke 14 as we close. Luke 14 Verses 26 through 28, Jesus said, and now keep in mind, he's speaking to great crowds when he was highly popular. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he has laid a foundation he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate 
whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus was not a salesman. He was very upfront about the cost. And it will cost us something to follow Jesus. But oh, the rewards that cannot even be fully imagined in this world. Oh, the cost is high. Make no mistake. Jesus was quite clear. But like those who pay millions of dollars for parking spots and cars and iPhones, they do that because the value of it far exceeds the cost. And we do the same. We follow Jesus not because it's easy. We follow Jesus not because everybody will like us. We follow Jesus not because it's the uh, light and easy way in this world. We follow Jesus because we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And belief and allegiance to that belief and allegiance to Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, may well cost you everything you have. So when you follow him, you're ready to renounce everything you have, everything you are, your own self. Jesus says it's following me all the way to the cross. Or you will crucify who you are in exchange for who I have called you to be. Tonight, I ask you, have you paid the price? Have you accepted the cost of following Jesus? You could begin tonight by showing that you are trusted and fully committed to him by showing your faith and putting him on in baptism, trusting and obeying, as we sang about earlier. But know this, if you've done that, The costs do not stop. It's an ongoing process. And it's a cost well worth whatever the price may be. Tonight, if you have not responded to the good news of Jesus Christ, I don't want to mislead you. There's a high cost of following Jesus. Uh, But there's no better decision you'll ever make in the entire world on this side of eternity and to follow him and follow him all the way. If you need to do that tonight, or if you've followed him, and maybe you've violated some of these principles, you've got stuck and mired in sin, you need our prayers, our encouragement, or you need to repent in a public way, respond tonight. And remember, the price has been paid for you and I. If we will just trust and obey. If you have a need tonight, please meet me down front. As together, we stand and sing.